Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Doing Design Podcast on This Is HCD, hosted by all the world's best live design and innovation trainers from thisisdoing.com. In this podcast, we'll speak about all the behind-the-scenes things related to actually doing innovation and design within organizations. So we'll cover topics that include design research, service design, user experience design, content design, product management, and much, much more. In this episode, you'll hear from myself, Jerry Scullion. I'm a service designer first and foremost, but also the founder of This Is HCD and also the CEO of This Is Doing. And joining me in this episode is Adam Lawrence, part of the This Is Doing team and someone I hugely respect both as a human being and as a practitioner. I always walk away from any conversation with Adam or session learning something new from him. And interestingly, I asked Adam at the start of this episode how he describes himself to which he responds, it's all about bringing people together really. And at its core, that's kind of what we do in a day-to-day job. We bring people together to tackle complexity and move the dial forward, hopefully. But how do we do this in the current world that we find ourselves in, when Zoom and mural sessions have replaced the studio spaces for workshop facilitation? We speak about what we are doing to help alleviate some of the known issues within these digital experiences, and speak about the blurry edges of the experiences that we as practitioners should be aware of and try to address when designing online facilitation experiences. Let's get into the episode. A very warm welcome to Doing Design. I'm delighted to have you here. How are you? I'm very well this morning. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. We were literally just mid-chat there, and I was asking, yeah. that, how do you frame what you do? I've never um, actually thought about that. This is a, it's a really good question. People yeah. ask me, what am I doing? I normally say I'm helping people get stuff done. So I guess that's facilitation in a classical sense. And looking back on what I've done over my life, background psychology originally, and then marketing back in the days when marketing was king, you know, when it was all the P's, not just promotion, but it was deciding what to make and what price it should be at. So in that day, I worked in a large automotive company and it was about connecting different mindsets, different cultures, the Japanese and European culture, not understanding each other. And then engineering and marketing, not understanding each other and trying to just help people almost being a translator between these different parts of the organization. I was very junior at the time, but that's yeah. kind of where I saw my, uh, my usefulness. And then as many folks know, I spent most of my life working in theater, usually interactive theater, improvised theater, some straight stage stuff as well. But what really fascinates me about the theatrical world is not so much the stage, not so much the user interface of the theater, if you like, but the back end, the processor. And so what's happening 
how do a bunch of people who are very dissimilar in their worldviews and in their skills, whether that's the director and the actors and the musicians or the technical people, the stage designers or the front of house and the marketing, this large yeah. organization. I mean, the city theater here in Nuremberg, the state theater is about 500 people work there. It's a big, it's a big thing. Yeah. And only about 50 are actually on stage. So you yeah. see the balance of that. And I was very interested in how they collaborate to make something work, to bring out shows every eight weeks or so on time in budget and to do that with people with such different worldviews. I mean, if you talk to a, a German master electrician who's running the stage lighting, you know, is mm. about the most down-to-earth person you could imagine, but they're producing great art. You know, and how does that happen? That's why I found the theater really, really interesting as a system. And the rehearsal yeah. room is what interests me. The, yeah. the, how do these people work together in a very practical way? They yeah. often find they can't work through language. They work through model making. They work through rehearsal. They work through stacks of information that the dramaturg puts together and you sort of read the implicit information in there as much as the explicit mm. information. It's a fascinating collaboration part. Yeah. How do you compare the theater world to service design? What's, there's a deep connection and a, a lot of the, the service design of merit are really played on that whole kind of theater, like orchestrating experiences. Yeah. yeah. It's a very similar world. Front stage, backstage, all these terms come through it. Yeah. And my I, background I, as a musician, I, I totally relate to what you're talking absolutely, about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what fascinates me about it, I mean, if you think about it, I've, this is a bit of a me moment here, but psychology is where I started off. Then this marketing role that shifted more into planning what was going to be built. So product planning, production planning, and from there into theater. And at some point I looked back on all that and I thought these are the same thing. And I don't mean that in a metaphorical mm. sense. I mean that literally the same thing. What you've got is you are using something very, very practical to make people feel a certain way. Yeah. You yeah. might be using, if you're a, if you're a, a therapeutic, therapeutic psychologist, you might use words to help someone explore their feelings. If you're a, yeah. a marketer doing promotion, you might use images and words to make someone want to buy something. If you're making a motorcycle using gasoline and steel and rubber to make somebody go, Wah! you know, as they scream down the motorway, you know, with a flat four screaming its head off. Or if you're on stage, you're moving people through space and using things like music and light and, and, of course, the words to make the audience want to put down probably quite a lot of money to be there, you know? Yeah. And all of these are intensely practical. You can't get away with a PowerPoint deck. You actually have to put the bike on the road. You actually have to put the show on stage yeah. on that date at that time. And if we say 9 o'clock, we mean 9 o'clock, not one minute past. Uh, yeah. And that's that's really a very interesting pragmatic world that I like working in. It's funny you say that you see them as exactly the same thing. I did an episode recently on this state city with Rafa Sardino, who's this Grammy 16 or 15 Grammy uh, award winning producer in America. Wow. I see the same. I see design and music is, is the same thing. Mm. And I've always thought it. And it wasn't until I had dinner with Mark actually in, in Dublin earlier this year. And I was chatting about it. I said, look, I can't separate the two. Mm. Music mm. is exactly the same as design for me. The process of going into a studio with an idea for a song yeah. and iterating what was really interesting. When I spoke to Rap Sardina recently, was how the industry has evolved and technology has intercepted and reshaped how that process happens and how they validate the music yeah. to select the hits. I was like, and how it's ultimately kind of resulted in this generic 
pile of mm. I don't want to say this shit word, but I was gonna mm. say it. Mm. It's blandness, all all mm. the same stuff because mm. they're missing a lot of the face to face interaction with the audience and a lot of the magic has been removed from the process. This is always a danger, isn't it? I mean, I talk about all those things, theater, service design, making motorcycles or whatever, as the craftspersonship, the, the handicraft of emotion. This is how I actually make yeah. somebody feel a certain way. And yeah. a craftsman has tools, and tools evolve. Yeah? Yeah. So, okay, you and I are doing this through a video link, which is fantastic, so I'm going to come to Ireland to do it with you. But on the other hand, it does change the, our interaction. As, as, yeah. <laughs> as we said before, I don't know if you exist from the waist down. Yeah. You could be you could be some kind of Dalek figure. Careful. You know. Exactly. <laughs> you know. This is really interesting because I think that facilitation and facilitation for me is the key skill of a service designer. Yeah. I think Sarah Drummond, that brilliant woman, says that the material of a service designer is the organization. That's the stuff that we mold and we yeah, work fabric. with. Yeah, exactly. And so the way that you influence that fabric is through facilitating groups of people or conversations, yeah? And yeah. facilitation for me is extremely physical. There is so much that happens because of the way you move in the room, how far away you stand from somebody, whether somebody breathes now or whether they breathe now. You know, these things are the richness of our communication comes through that. Now, it's not yeah. just the words. We know this. I don't want to misuse Merabian again, but you know this idea that, that people respond to you positively mostly because of your body language and the way you say things more than the things you actually say. So this, of course, gets very interesting when you are reduced to a 20 by 20 centimeter square where I can't smell you, literally can't smell you. We know there's actually quite a lot of chemical communication between human beings. Yeah? And I certainly can't see if your foot is, is twitching because you're impatient. You could be Those smiling. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're all part and parcel of trying to build trust. So showing how, how you actually understand the person and showing if you're actually somebody that you can actually build rapport with. When, Which is when so important. Thinking. Yeah, because if when we're doing design, so when we're, we're collaboratively designing a service design project or whatever mm. with various parts of an organization, we're taking a lot of those people into scary places yeah? Yeah. because people identify themselves through their skills, through their knowledge, through their decision-making capabilities and things like that. And mm. then we come along and say, well, yeah, but you know, your knowledge is retrospective. We make decisions by prototyping now, not by asking smart people, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So we really challenge people's identity. Yeah? yeah, and they've got great tools that are working really well for them most of the time. So that idea of trust and what we say in theater and in facilitation in, in my school of facilitation is safe space. Yeah, that physical and mental context in which it's okay to mess up, and yeah? which mess yeah. up is actually seen as useful, is very very important and not easy to create. In most companies, if you mess up, there's a meeting. Yeah, and that's I'm not the case in design. Those little nuances of facial expressions are lost. Mm. You know, like, I mean, I, I remember famously doing a workshop, famously for me, not for actually the whole world, I should point out. But in Australia, I, I did a workshop with a lot of social workers. And what I was proposing, I was able to read the room because I was there physically and I could sense something was shifting. And at the coffee break, I took a few of them aside and said, hey, can I validate what I'm seeing here? I said, there's, there's something going on. And they go, are you trying to make us redundant? Are you, is this going to make us redundant? Am I going to lose my job? And I'm like, absolutely not. That's not my intention here. My intention here is to bring everyone together to 
to look at this problem and really try and understand it better and come up with some sort of like plan that we can work collaboratively. Mm. They're like, oh, okay. Mm. Now, if that had been removed and if this was all digital, I wouldn't have been able to, like, I may have, but like, chances are of me to have to detect Side that. conversations are so hard on this. A group of people mm. in the Zoom, it's really hard just to say, hey, did you notice that? You have to like go into a breakout into like a big thing of it. It's difficult. Yeah. And yeah. that's another thing. There's a lovely story that Mark Stickton uh, shared with me um, about costume. Yeah. So let's think about costume. I tend to work in a suit. Yeah. That's a decision that we've made because yeah. our methods are quite playful and quite odd looking and it doesn't hurt to look conservative while you do these things. But Mark spoke of a situation where he was in an organization and doing research with the people there. And his team chose to, to dress very casually and dress like the people in the organization did. And that made a huge difference because what this company had was a situation where normally once a year, consultants come in, yeah. consultants in quotation marks, you know, guys in suits walk around with a clipboard and two months later, someone gets fired. And that is people's experience of having visiting experts in the organization. It normally leads to rationalization and a misuse of the word lean and people lose their jobs. Yeah. I've been on that side of, of things as well, where the person coming around with the clipboard and says, can I ask you, I just want to check this process here. Mm. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, what are you trying to do? So I've had that experience, but also I use dress as well. When I go into organizations, if I'm researching, it's, I try to dress down, I suppose dressing up and it's such an important tool as part of our craft, but I'm obviously wearing a t-shirt uh, here today and mm. you're wearing a, a polo shirt, but ch it changes depending on, on who I'm working with. And how it I does. want to be perceived. And it, it also changes the way you feel about yourself as well. That power dressing thing. But sometimes, or you can take off mm -hmm. your, your armor and, and, and be a little bit more human. I feel much more comfortable. I'm going to take out my shoulder pads. Um, <laughs> yeah, power dressing in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. Those were the days, man. Let's those go back to that. The hair, the hairspray. Oh, <laughs> so chatting about facilitation, and we've both done a, a lot of facilitation workshops in person. But how are you finding the kind of shift to 95% all online? Because I know you do a little bit still in person, but sure. it's a select group. Yeah. Well, what are the things that you're struggling with yourself? I've got to admit I was quite vehemently anti-online before this, and I still much prefer doing stuff in person. I'm going to be honest about that. But I've been quite surprised how well many things work, how some things work better online. But what I worry about is the gaps between, mm. yeah, because this is one of my sort of little, um, my little campaigns I'm trying to push through my life. I'm trying to get designers, service designers to stop thinking in workshops, yeah, because 95% of our work happens outside workshops. And that's, that's really important to acknowledge that. It's not, not everything is a sprint, yeah. And yeah. of course, when we are doing more and more stuff online, it tends to, you know, focus our attention more on those very, let's say, structured interventions of a workshop type where you run a session, you run a tool with people and so on, because you can't have the conversation in the corridor afterwards. It's probably just as important as the actual yeah. session itself. Yeah. You can't sit beside somebody while they're starting to implement the things you've been talking about or, or move your desk there for a week and just see what's going on. It all happens through very conscious, framed interventions or conversations, and we're sort of losing that in between. and. Yeah. This worries me quite a lot. It worries me generally because people are saying, oh, we don't need offices and so on because the work is happening really well through video. Yes, the work happens 
pretty well through video, but work is not the only thing that happens in the office. There's yeah. so much social capital as well. And there's so much implicit and underground communication going on, which yeah. I think is the actual, it's more than just the lubricant. It's actually a lot of the value that we create in our organizations comes through that. Yeah. And if we focus on only on getting the job done, I think quite soon, we're going to find that more and more difficult. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see, you know, we've, we've become more robot-like, I guess, in the last yes. six months than, we, than we've yes. ever become. And we're just on a process. Like yes. the People are just being applied to a process to get a job done. Yes. So how will that transfer into, into staff and churn? And exactly. Because we're, we're certainly very replaceable. We are. Um, and we're also all quite worried to hang on to our jobs and trying not to be the one who, who makes too much noise about it and so on, because many people are in difficult financial situations and it's an interesting time. I mean, in terms of the actual work of facilitation, a lot of my thinking is around how do we make that that stuff that happens beside the actual project. Yeah, let's let's call it the the edges. Yeah, those soft edges where all these interesting things happen. Yeah. How do we get them into a Zoom call, for example? You know. Yeah. So it can be a little thing like, for example, not using the waiting room, but just being there a bit early. And when folks rock up, they rock up and you start having a chat with them. And as other Absolutely. ones come in, you know, even if you're still getting your PowerPoint together, it doesn't matter. Yeah? yeah. But if you have that moment where, you know, at nine o'clock, the waiting room opens and everyone comes in simultaneously, it's automatically anonymizing. 20 faces show up at once. Okay. They're just faces. And it's fine if some people show up a little bit towards the end, but I've had conversations with at least a few folks before it goes off. And at the end, a soft close. Who yeah. wants to hang out? You know, who wants to come back later on? And we often offer, we have these open space sessions we run quite a lot at the co-creation school with my friend Renata Sergenrat and Anna Kira Becht, where we just have an sort of open, open house a couple of times a month. And people just rock up and there yeah. it's easy to go into a little room and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation if you want to. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, just when you, when you look at those kind of, they're hard lines being more blurred lines. Yeah. With it. I'm, not, I'm not trying to quote Robin Thicke, but like those blurred lines are really important. Yes. And especially when you do design research, like my background is primarily in, in research and design research. Many of the most important conversations are had on exit whenever yes. they've, they've left the room and I'm walking them back to their car. Yep. And too often they're like, what was that about? You know, are they really going to try and build that? Yeah. What, do you, what were you trying to get out of me? And I'm like, exactly. well, exactly. And that's lost. That's it gone. is. It is. And, you know, so how do it'd be really that? weird. Yeah. yeah. How do we do that online? Like, and I, I don't think it's impossible, but, you know, I was out walking. And I, I walked my kids to, to daycare this morning. And suddenly other sort of methods for research online are going to become a, a lot more important. Stuff like mobile ethnography and yeah. uh, all those, those different disciplines that give us more broader understanding of. The, the problems that we're trying to research but it'll take longer to sense make and it'll take longer to get those really rich insights mm, and businesses need to be prepared for that because on the other hand if we're treating everything like a process and it's just like five days for this three days for that research is going to take longer and it's, it's not going to be a very much like in and out it's, it's going to be a mm. more effort it's going to be much harder and the, the difficulty around that is that a lot of organizations don't really get research anyway and they want to have, I guess, quite digital information. What are the numbers? What are the, what are the facts and so on? Yeah, um, the quantitative stuff or very clear A connects to B type statements. Yeah? yeah. And you and I know that an awful lot of the most important stuff in research and design generally is implicit. Yeah. It's, you can't actually express it in words, and certainly not in numbers. 
or or you'd need to write a novel or a play to express it. You can't, but you can't put it into a sentence. Yeah. So that stuff gets carried through projects in those little conversations in between. Certainly, in the form of prototypes that can embody things that you can't say, and you know, the tone of voice and things like this, and with the sort of the square edge of your screen making such a sharp division between you know work and not work now it's going to be challenging to find out ways to keep that important implicit side of design mm. going so what's working well let's talk because yeah. i thought sarah drummond i mean unbelievable every time i open up twitter it's like <laughs> it's like gandalf the wise yeah it's like it usually encapsulates what i've been thinking in some form but she, she has a habit yeah much better and there's mural and there's miro there's zoom mm-hmm. hangout skype which i really, we don't hear too much of skype actually let's do a skype session anymore it's all the zoom call mm-hmm. but all these great tools how are you using them to get what you need to get done yeah so our standard setup is going to be an online whiteboard personally i i found uh mural and Miro both be very good and a Zoom call is my preferred channel. Uh, I do like breakout rooms, and they're very important. I do like gallery view. We can see everybody, and these things don't always work in some of the other offerings out there. Of course, you have to use what the client's using. Yeah. But as you say, yeah, some of it is working really well. So let's think about what the upsides are of this. For certain people, a sort of happy, jumpy, bouncy workshop room is a horrible place to be. Yeah. yeah. People have more introvert preferences. Yeah. Can feel uncomfortable in that space. So. The possibility to just type something into a chat window and send mm. it into the middle of the room yeah, is actually very useful. And if you think about the times in, let's imagine a workshop where you have several teams in the same space, where you split the team to work on different aspects and you go around yeah. the room and you ask them to sort of, where are you guys right now? Where are you guys right now? Where are you guys right now? One, that takes quite a while. yeah, And two, again, the loudmouth people will dominate that. The extrovert alpha types will dominate that where you say okay everyone everyone put your latest insight into the chat window or drop it onto the board boom yeah that takes a second and we have an a much more um equal volume of voice from different people yeah so that's really interesting to how these channels can help us engage the people who are not the usual suspects not yeah. the ones who who love a nice noisy workshop and uh, want to be in in front of the flip chart the whole time telling people what they think there is a little bit of the whole you know, the, the digital footprint. If you say something wrong online, it can be screen grabbed and it can yes. be it can yes. be used against you in, in future. Yes. Whereas in that safe and brave room that we all try and, and cultivate and, and create when we're doing real world workshops, yeah. I find that space is something that scares me the most. Yes, uh, it is. The, the, the people in the organizations who have got so much to offer they're like, I'm not putting anything online because HR can see this. And mm. it's trying to, it really is, it goes back to the trust thing. I'm like, how do you ensure them that what they put in there, they can take back out and it's not going to be used against them and, and so yeah. forth. Yeah. It's, it's those bits that don't get discussed enough. And They it, don't. It's good to see that some of the whiteboard, online whiteboard folks are now making more anonymization possible. For example, I used Miro yesterday and in Miro, you can click onto a post-it and see who wrote it and when. Yeah. And if it's been modified by someone else, that's also recorded there as well. We understand the reasoning behind that, but I understand in the latest version, they're going to switch that off so you can have real anonymous contribution. Yeah. One thing that we do there, for example, quite often is that we, if we use an online whiteboard in our work and that gets presented outside in any point, 
we don't give anyone access to the board. We, uh, they only get the PDF. Because in the PDF, you can't do that and you can't see. Yeah, so we can be more anonymous and so on. So we go through these boards and we will remove names here and there and stuff like this, unless somebody wants to put the name on something, which is fine, of course, and say, I stand for this. Yeah. Uh, but it's an extra process level, certainly. I know when we've caught up many times before, but applied improvisation is something yourself and Renata, you're part of the network. Yes. And in my understanding of applied improvisation, I've done it in stage mm-hmm. when I've tried my hand at acting and stuff. It's a very physical thing. It's a very, um, you're feeding off each other. You're feeding off that, that other person's expression and their energy is, is very transferable. And I know you're using a lot of the methods oh, online. Yeah. Talk me through what that looks like in an online experience. Sure, sure. So what we're talking about here is, is applied improvisation, which is taking the principles of improvisation, which normally happens on stage in things like whose line is it anyway, and so on. Or in the jazz club, where musicians improvise, or when Keith Jarrett goes on stage with his piano, or even on the sporting field, one of those strange non-round balls bounces the wrong way. The teams have to improvise really fast. And you take those principles and you apply them to non-traditional contexts. So it could be training, it could be design, but it could be conflict resolution, leadership, all things like this. And this is a community where I actually met Renatus, one of my main collaborators now. The Applied Improvisation Network is this fabulous group of people who are doing this. That's what they're interested in. Some are performers, some are not performers, but they luckily had already been concentrating on this online application of this for some years, even before COVID came along. Yeah? Yeah. I think a lot of that was about respect for the planet and trying to not fly around the world too much when we don't really need to and seeing what can we do through a screen. And so they're the guys, for example, who, who taught me half of the the basic Zoom hacks that we're all using now, like make, make everybody a co-host so they can move between rooms themselves, having a lobby area and stuff like this, all these little hacks using the Zoom function to mask people whose cameras are off so we can switch off a camera to kind of step into the background or switch on the camera to come in again. And we don't see lots and lots of black boxes, but we see just the people whose cameras are on. All these little things make a huge difference. So we've been able to adapt a lot of this work, a lot of these tools, into our, our work on screen. And we use this to prepare people to get the mindsets right for design uh, and to make sort of, if you like, learning points about things like divergent and convergent activities or whatever. But we also use it actually within the design process to work on prototypes, to work on ideation, on research and stuff like this. A lot of theatrical methods coming in there. So apart from improvisation, other kinds of applied theater sort of flowing into that. And it works really well. It works really well. It it's very important, I think, to remember that these video channels will tend to make us focus even more on talking, on everything becoming verbal. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And our cultures are already very much shaped by the more verbal people, whether that's written or spoken language. In the words of Bob Geldof, our priests, poets, and politicians who run the world, they are wordsmiths. Yeah. Yeah. But there are people in organizations who have incredible insights and amazing knowledge who are not strong. They're not word strong, as a Viking might say. Yeah. But yeah. they can show you something. They can build you something. They can walk you through something. Yeah. And as we are more and more on screen, it's really important to find ways to activate that side of the knowledge and the wisdom in the room and not just yeah. have it all be through words. Doing, not talking has been our motto at the jam for years against talking but we think the balance needs to shift yeah it's really hard because as a facilitator 
your responsibility is to make people feel comfortable and to support them in being feeling respected enough to come out and say those things. I think that's half yeah. your response. One of the methods that we use most in our work is one called investigative rehearsal, which is a very long, chunky name. But it's a, a design version of a thing called Forum Theatre or Theatre of the Oppressed, which was invented by a Brazilian theatre maker called Augusto Boal. And this is a kind of theatre where the audience steps into the scene and takes over roles. Yeah? So we use this as a design method for research, for ideation, prototyping and implementation. And the model, the person, the facilitator in Boal's work is often called the difficultator because part of your job there is to say, I don't think that's good enough. Yeah. Do you really think that's that we've proved this now? Is that wishful thinking? This actually is going to work? Yeah. Yeah. And this needs to be done, obviously, with respect and trust as well. And you probably shouldn't start this way. But challenging people is very important as a facilitator because it's very easy for a group to get into a bubble and yeah. to be in love with their own ideas and to see the world in a way that suits the solution they prepared for it. And sometimes bursting that bubble can be really important. Another word that Boal uses or that community uses for that role of the facilitator is the joker. And I love that term. Yeah. So it's like joker in a pack of cards. And that's a beautiful, a beautiful image, if you like, because first of all, the joker in the pack of cards is based on the medieval fool. Yeah, the jester, if you like, which is a facilitation role. The jester, who was often a person with extreme physical challenges or somebody from a very humble background, was one of the only people in the court who could say the truth because yeah. they were never going to be king. Yeah, that was very clear about because their personality. And they could say the truth and they could make it acceptable because they were able to package it in humor. And there, yeah. are, there are actually historical accounts of, I forget which French king it was, but the French had lost a horrible naval battle against the British and nobody was able to tell the king. You know, it was one of those sort of Stalin situations where nobody dared tell the guy he's going to flip out that they'd lost you know, half an army until the jester, I forget his name, told the king that the, the French knights were so brave they'd all jumped into the sea to fight the English. Something like this is really, really important. And the joker in the pack of cards also, and this is so, so important in facilitation, the joker can be a two or a three or a four or a five or a six or a seven or a jack or a queen or a king or an ace. It can be anything. Yeah. yeah. And in facilitation, we need to remember that we can vary our relative status. Yeah. We need to sometimes go down to eye level to squat beside the table and say, hey, guys, what's going on? I'm not really following. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes to stand in the middle and, and take a stand and say, guys, what's happening is not acceptable. Yeah, and vary between, if you like, the, the royalty and the lower numbers. Yeah. Um, as we walk, yeah, relative status, as we go through a workshop to help direct it towards a useful conclusion for everyone involved. We do that in the real world, but how are you applying that in the online world? Because at the moment, you've got the breakout rooms and you've got yeah. the, the kind of the primary state. Mm -hmm. And well, I struggle with this. Like, yeah, like a breakout room, you can jump in and jump out and kind of go, hey, everything okay in here? I'm just, and then you've got that awkward 20 seconds where you're leaving. Yeah. Like, I'm leaving the room and then you, you're joining another room. But how are you doing that? Is there anything that you're doing that you want to share? I think, I mean, some of it is still physical. So, one of the things around status, relative status, is voice. Yeah. And generally, if you want to have a lower status, then you'll speak a little bit higher and you'll say, quite a lot and you maybe you won't mm. finish 
a sentence, you know, that will make you, I mean, I'm, I'm overplaying it now, obviously, horribly, but that sort of shift to being- Unless you're having a moment. There we go. To being a little bit conspiratorial and, and, and you know, lots of head movement and so on. That works really, really well to lower your relative status or you lower your voice and you say less and you might even yeah. be a little bit quieter. Yeah, that's a thing you can do to raise your relative status when that's necessary or useful. I think in terms of those little asides, it's the availability of edge areas, to use your word again, yeah? I mean, what are you doing in the breaks? Are you hanging yeah. out so they can come for a little conversation, yeah? Maybe with some music on in the background that makes you feel a little bit more chill and a little yeah. bit less overheard. One of the reasons that we offer these open sessions generally at the co-creation school is that it means people who are in a serious session with us have an opportunity to pop in somewhere else and say, hey, by the way, last week, I don't know if you got it, but this happened. Yeah? And that has actually happened a few times. So it's, it's another area. It's a side room, which is not even labeled as such, but it's the yeah. simplest offer of something going on. I do put a suit on the Zoom call sometimes. Maybe not a suit, but a jacket at least, or a collared shirt rather than a T-shirt. You can lean into the camera, lean out again. I mean, I have quite a nice camera here. The guys listening can't see that. But sometimes it's better to use the good old laptop camera just so you, yeah. you're picked like everybody else's. You don't look like you're some sort of dominating high-tech expert with lots of money to spend on these things. The one thing that I would say is audio is extremely important mm. for me anyway, in particular, like when I'm listening for prolonged periods. Yes. And it, it can really irritate my ears in particular. I'm getting older and my ears are very sort of frail from years of bashing them in rehearsal rooms and playing <laughs> guitars too loud. But I, I find if, if the audio speaker who, who I'm listening to isn't on point coming and going, it's very difficult to maintain the attention of, of the attendees. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it is very difficult. I know there's a couple of courses you're running on this is doing yeah. at the moment with Renatus. One of them's in September. Tell us a little bit more about that. So these are what we call the facilitation fundamentals courses. There are a few other things we're doing, which are really exciting on this is doing as well. But the main one I guess people are, are looking at is that one. And what we've tried to do here is looking back on our decades <laughs> yeah, of uh, facilitation experience, we've tried to boil that down. We've tried to say, what are the absolute fundamentals of this work? And mm. myself and Renatus and our colleague Anna Kirabex. And I call this the Mr. Miyagi approach to facilitation. I don't know. Yeah. I guess most of the listeners are too young, but there was a movie once called The Karate Kid. There was a remake of it, which is, yeah, but the original is great. And this young guy is being Daniel. bullied at school. I think Daniel San, yeah, being bullied at school. And he has a Japanese neighbor who is a karate sensei, an elderly gentleman. And he gets this, the elderly gentleman agrees, Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach him karate. Yeah, so Daniel-san goes over and he spends the first day painting Mr. Miyagi's fence. Yeah, up and, he, and down, yeah, up and down. down. He has to move his hand in a certain way with the brush. And he spends the second day waxing the car, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, moving his hand in a, in a certain way. And he can't just do it anyway. It has to repeat these movements until the late into the night and the third day he's sanding the deck. And at some point he flips out and he says, I've come here to, to learn karate. And yeah. Mr. Miyagi says, you are learning karate. And he says, BS, I've been sanding the deck and I've been painting the wall and wax on, wax off. And Mr. Miyagi throws a punch at him. Yeah. And he automatically moves his hand in the wax off position and blocks the punch. And he throws yeah. a couple of kicks and it's the sanding movements to block the kicks. 
And he says, yeah. you are learning karate. You're learning the essential moves. Yeah. And, when and, you the come back, and the mindset. And when we come back later, we'll put that together. But you need to get these essentials right first. So yeah. these fundamentals, I think, are super useful for a, be for a beginner because they will be the building blocks like wax on, wax off of everything you do after that. Everything after that fits into these frameworks. Or if you are an experienced facilitator, they will connect things for you and show yeah. you further options. We say they are presence, flow, and structure. Yeah? yeah. So it's about how you put your courses, your sessions together, whether they be training courses or design sessions. It's about how you stand and move and speak as a presenter. And it's about when you take control and when you let go. Yeah. yeah. So that freedom within structure. And we have some great sessions. Each one is a full half day where we yeah. do lots of activities around this. We do lots of applied improv stuff and really explore these three things to get your wax on and your wax on. And it's primarily focused on the online medium. Well, we do it online. And so what we try and do is we're always trying to have sort of two or three levels of learning happening at once. So if you've seen this method before, we at least try and show it to you in a new way. And if you know that way of doing it, maybe the way we're presenting it online or the way we're using the online platform is interesting to you as well. So we, we try to use everything we know about online training, and that's certainly part of, the, of what you'll take away. But because these are fundamentals, we genuinely believe they apply everywhere. They apply whether you're online or offline and you adapt it to the situation you're in. Adam, great chat with you. Thanks for having me, Jerry. So there you have it. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. Now, if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.